Greetings, everyone. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning verse 1. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, he said that this would occur in the last days, the days leading up to the end of this age, and we are in that time. We're living today in perilous times, And as things progress, the world promises to become even more perilous. So, we need to ask ourselves if we are prepared for what is coming. And how should we prepare? Each of us needs to ask himself or herself these questions. Jesus Christ warned in Revelation 3 that even as the end of the age draws near, Paradoxically, many, even in the church, or you might say especially in the church, would be heedless, convinced of their own righteousness, self-satisfied, and spiritually blind, in certain respects at least. We read in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, the last in a succession of churches, church eras that are discussed in Revelation 2 and 3, He says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, Of these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is a powerful rebuke, a powerful message addressed to, to God's own church and it is a church of people who are lukewarm of people who are neither cold nor hot and that spirit that attitude is not acceptable to God as the scripture tells us and so we are Admonish, we are warned to repent, and that applies to all of us. We all need to examine ourselves to make sure that we're 
exercising zeal, dedication, and commitment to God and to God's way of life. They were not just sort of drifting through life, comfortable and contented and satisfied with our spiritual condition, which always needs improvement. We're warned in many scriptures that we are not to be spiritually asleep, especially as the end of this age approaches. We need to wake up and we need to be prepared for what's ahead of us. And it's time for us to take stock of where we are, what's coming, make sure that we are real Christians, prepared and ready for what we are facing both in the near future as well as in the more distant future. And that's what I want to discuss in today's sermon, how we can make our calling and election sure. As Israel came out of Egypt, they were bound for the promised land. They had been liberated by God from slavery and they were being taken to an inheritance that God had in mind for them. And they knew, or at least had been told, what their destination was to be. But they did not know all the twists and turns that would lie in the path before them because they were going through a wilderness. They had a journey to make before they got to the destination. And they did not understand the spiritual requirements that would enable them to successfully complete their journey, even though they had been told what was expected of them. In a similar manner, we know what our destination is. We're destined for the kingdom of God. That's the promise that God has laid before us. The reward his kingdom and we don't know all the twists and turns that our path to the kingdom of God will take but we do need to keep our bearings and we need to know what is required of us spiritually to reach the goal we need to keep the goal in the forefront of our minds and so we read in Hebrews 4 beginning with verse 1 Hebrews 4 and verse 1 therefore since a promise remains of entering his rest The rest here is a metaphor for the kingdom of God. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Them, speaking of the people in the wilderness, the people of ancient Israel, received the gospel message. But it says the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they heard the message of the gospel. God spoke to them, in fact, directly from Mount Sinai. But the words for most of them was not received in faith. Now many signs indicate and many pundits are warning and have been warning for some time that we are facing a watershed crisis in our history, both as a nation and as a world. I want to spend a few minutes discussing some of the trends in today's world that merit our attention. Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 36, Matthew 24 and verse 36, that we do not know the day nor the hour of His coming. He said, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, but as in the days of Noah were so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, 
marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Noah had been commissioned to preach the gospel to the people of that age. He had preached the gospel, in fact, for 120 years. And so it was not that they had not been warned, but they ignored the warnings. They were just living their lives, taking it easy, and going about doing things their way in opposition to God's commandments and His way of life. The world, we were told, was filled with violence and evil. But they were doing things in accordance with their habitual customs until the end came suddenly. Now, no doubt there were warnings. And as I mentioned, Noah was proclaiming to them a message telling them to repent and warning them but they did not take that message seriously. We don't know the exact timetable or how all of these events will work out in precise order, but we can know when the time is approaching. And even though the world will be warned, most, as in the days of Noah, will be caught unawares. But the calamitous events preceding the coming of Jesus Christ itself need not catch us unprepared. We're told in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12 beginning verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. And there is, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? This time. The time that Jesus was speaking these words was in some ways a unique time in history. It was a time when the Messiah was walking the face of the earth preaching the gospel. And they could not discern the time. Yes, why even of yourselves, Jesus said, do you not judge what is right? Of yourselves, Jesus said, do you not judge what is right? So, we don't need to be blind or ignorant as to the nature of the times that we're living in. Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 42, Matthew 24 and verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So we need to be ready regardless of the exact time of Christ's coming. We need to be ready at all times. We need to be prepared. We need to be watching. Because like a thief in the night who could show up at any time, we're living in an age of darkness and Christ could come at an hour that we do not expect if we are not watching and aware 
of what is going on around us, and especially in terms of how it relates to biblical prophecy. So, how can we discern the times? If we view world events from the perspective of biblical prophecy, we can perceive how events are moving towards the collapse of the present world order. The system of relations between the various nations of the world, which is called the world order, is not going to last to the end of this age. It is going to be replaced by a new world order dominated by a united Europe, at least for a time. And there will also be powerful forces in the east that will be not only numbering in the hundreds of millions and billions, but also will be militarily strong. And again, we cannot know the precise timetable of twists and turns that those future events will take, but we can understand the broad outline of what is coming and major events that will lie ahead, and we can look for signposts to watch for. Many pundits have observed the devolution of the constitutional system of the United States over the past 150 years or so, and see clearly that the unraveling of the nation into chaos, the United States, which has been sort of the bulwark of the current world order, helping to maintain peace throughout the world, although we've seen numerous wars during that period, but the United States has been a stabilizing force in the world, along with Britain and other nations, but especially those two powerful nations. And many, though, can see the unraveling of the nation into chaos unless we reverse course quickly, which seems highly unlikely to happen. We face many problems in the United States, including out-of-control government spending, massive illegal immigration into the United States, levels of crime and violence in our cities that we haven't seen in decades, if ever, the proliferation of illegal drugs and widespread drug addiction, along with a host of other societal ills. But these are only symptoms of much greater core problems that go to the root of our nation and culture. And these problems are fundamentally spiritual. Now this nation has never been a perfectly righteous nation as far as adherence to God's laws are concerned. In fact, far from it. But on the other hand, no nation has ever been such since the time of Adam and Eve. Nevertheless, our nation's founding had a spiritual foundation with a certain respect for the precepts of the Bible. However flawed the spiritual understanding of the leaders and citizens of the nation was, and as I've explained before in various sermons and articles, and the church has explained for many years, the United States and Great Britain and her colonies, along with, to a lesser extent, certain other Western European nations have been blessed in the past 200 years plus to a degree and in ways that no other nations in history have ever been blessed. And these blessings were given to us as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. They have been given as part of the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham nearly 4,000 years ago. 
We read in Genesis 26, beginning with verse 1. Genesis 26, verse 1, There is a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines of Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants... I will give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Notice why these blessings were to be passed on to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because Abraham was obedient to the voice of God and the blessings promised to Abraham and his descendants especially the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh the sons of Joseph who was a son of Israel or Jacob were to be fulfilled in the end times, near the end of this age. And there were promises of power and wealth on a worldwide scale. And these promises have been fulfilled in the peoples of Great Britain and her colonies and the United States in particular, not due to their merit or righteousness, but because God made these promises to their forefathers because the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, submitted to God's will in their lives. Now, it's no accident that the peoples of Britain and the United States acknowledged the God of the Bible in the years when they emerged from relative obscurity on the world stage to take dominant roles, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I believe that God wanted them to be able to see whence came their blessings. So the Bible was translated into the vernacular, the English language and other languages, but especially English in the 17th century. And so it was available to any and everyone who spoke or read the English language to study it and read it for themselves. The printing press was also developed about the same time. And so Bibles became widely available. And by the time of the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, Bibles were prolific. They were everywhere, especially among the English-speaking peoples. But not only them, the Bible has been translated into virtually every major language in the world since that time. So God, I believe, wanted especially those people to be able to see whence came their blessings because they were to be blessed as no other peoples have ever been. Now, they were far from perfect in their understanding of biblical truths even though they had Bibles and read them in many cases. They were far from perfect in their understanding of the truth of the Bible and the ways of God, but they did have a certain reverence that developed 
within those nations for the commandments of God and for the concepts of the God of the Bible as the creator and ruler of mankind. They believed that the God of the Bible was the one who was the creator, that he had absolute authority. And to a certain extent, they believed that his laws were to be obeyed. Much of the system of law and concepts of morality that guided the nations of Great Britain and the United States in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries were in fact based on biblical principles. When the United States declared its independence from the British crown, it was stated in the Declaration of Independence that they were entitled to do so by the laws of nature and of nature's God. And it was commonly understood at the time that the laws of nature were of divine origin and that they were not in conflict with the revealed law of Scripture. In fact, it was believed that they were complementary. It was declared that all men, in the Declaration of Independence, it was declared that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. So God was viewed as the Creator and the one who was the author of liberty, the rights that were to be guaranteed to people under the government that was being created or developed, formed in the United States at that time. President John Quincy Adams wrote later that the sovereignty of the people recognized in the Declaration of Independence was deemed, quote, always subordinate to the supreme ruler of the universe for the rightful exercise of that sovereign power. In other words, the people were to be subject to God in the eyes of John Quincy Adams, who's, who, along with his father, were very influential in the early years of the Republic, both of them being presidents eventually. Alexis de Tocqueville was a Frenchman who came to visit America in 1831, and he traveled around the country. He wrote his observations in a book titled Democracy in America. And he observed this as he traveled about, quote, in America, religion is the road to knowledge and the observance of the divine laws lead man to civil freedom. This was, in a way, how he summed up the culture of the country at that time. A, an important element in the culture is that religion was regarded as the road to knowledge and the observance of the divine laws leads man to civil freedom. In other words, the commandments, the laws of God were not regarded as somehow an obstacle to freedom, but they were the, the road, the course, the foundation of the freedoms that were being enjoyed at that time. Now this was at a time in the nation's history called the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. And for several decades in the early part of the 19th century, there was a religious fervor, a very strong religious fervor that swept the country. And especially in the northern part of the country, that it included 
a strong sentiment toward the abolition of slavery, along with other moral ideas that were derived largely from Scripture. Now, the Christianity of that time was not the Christianity of the New Testament. The Christianity of most of the country had been polluted with false teachings, twisted teachings that are not scriptural and polluted with practices derived from pagan idolatry. But incorporated also in that religion, especially at that time, was an element of biblical morality based on the commandments of God. Liberty, that is freedom from the tyranny of an oppressive government, was widely if not universally recognized among the founders of the Republic of the United States as a gift from God. Thomas Jefferson, one of the primary authors of the Declaration of Independence, wrote, quote, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I realize that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever, end quote. George Washington stated, George Washington being the first president of the New Republic, stated in his first inaugural address, quote, we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained, end quote. The second president of the United States, John Adams, said, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, end quote. When President Adams spoke of a religious people, he was not speaking of religion in some abstract way. He wrote to Thomas Jefferson that, quote, the Bible is the best book in the world, end quote. In fact, he made a number of comments remarking about his esteem and respect for the scriptures. Throughout much of the history of the United States, the opening of the school day in many public schools featured a non-denominational prayer and reading a passage of scripture from the Bible. However, in 1962, the Supreme Court of the United States declared prayer in schools a violation of the Constitution. Somehow this was discovered after well over 100 years, about 150 years or more of the country's existence, all of a sudden that praying in school was somehow a violation of the Constitution. Shortly thereafter, reading the Bible in a public school was declared unconstitutional, and other court cases followed, and eventually for a public school official to even have a Bible on his desk was a cause for lawsuit and dismissal, and some school administrators were in fact fired because they displayed Bibles on their person or on their desks and so forth. Jennifer Kaufman, a federal judge, banned public display of the Declaration of Independence 
the national motto, and in God we trust, and excerpts from other official and historical documents, including the Constitution of the State of Kentucky, based on the fact that the documents mentioned God. Again, she banned public display of the Declaration of Independence, the motto, and God we trust, which is on most, if not all, of our coins. And you might uh, note the hypocrisy in that uh, motto, but uh, nevertheless, it's there. She banned excerpts from other official and historical documents, including the Constitution of the State of Kentucky, based on the fact that these documents mention God. She was appointed by President Bill Clinton. Her decision was upheld by the United States Supreme Court. Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore was removed from office on the order of a federal court on the basis of his placement of a display featuring the Ten Commandments in the lobby of the Alabama State Judicial Building. It was ruled by the federal court that placing the Ten Commandments display constituted an acknowledgment of God by the judge and such an acknowledgment violates the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Even though our historical documents are filled with stated acknowledgments of God by many of our presidents and uh, various other public officials. Suddenly, though, it was uh, against the Constitution for a public official to acknowledge the God of the Bible. Meanwhile, court cases declared, and this was the same period of time in the last 60, 70 years, meanwhile, court cases declared anti-pornography laws in various states to be unconstitutional. Also, laws prohibiting homosexual relations and abortion were declared to be unconstitutional. And today... Preschool and primary school children are being subjected to instruction promoting promiscuous sex, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Same-sex marriage is accepted as a constitutional right. Millions of babies have had their lives snuffed out by abortion, sometimes being murdered in the, in the birth canal. Nurse Jill Stanick testified in Congress in 2019 of babies being born alive and left to die after botched abortions. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, in commenting on a controversial 40-week abortion bill, said the law allows an abortion to take place after an infant's birth. In the Journal of Medical Ethics, the authors of an article suggested, this article being published in 2012, the authors suggested that babies who are born alive should be subject to being put to death for the same reasons that a baby might be aborted before birth in other circumstances. In other words, they're not only advocating the legalized, quote, legalized murder of babies before they're born, but we're getting to the point now where it's becoming more and more acceptable to contemplate the murder of babies living after birth. Federal courts in the past hundred years or so have been instrumental in turning the culture of the nation upside down, declaring legal what was in the past forbidden 
and forbidding what was in the past deemed illegal. Much of the thrust of these changes have, has been aimed at undermining respect for God and God's laws and replacing them with ideas of morality directly contrary to God's word. Roscoe Pound was dean of Harvard Law School from 1916 to 1936. Harvard Law is perhaps the most prestigious and influential law school in the nation. Pound is considered a pioneer in what is called sociological jurisprudence. The term sociological jurisprudence is in, in effect an idea that judges should not rule according to how laws are written, but decisions should be made to reshape society in accordance with evolving ideas of right and wrong. The outcome is laws that tend to accord with biblical principles have been undermined in many cases and replaced by laws that contradict biblical morality. Pound stated it this way, quote, We are back to the state as the unchallengeable authority behind legal precepts. The state takes the, takes the place of Jehovah handing the tablets of the law to Moses. This was his view, that the state, in other words, the government, and especially the federal government, is the unchallengeable authority. And that government has taken the place of God, who gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Any meaningful fear of God is largely missing among leaders, politicians, judges, and the public at large in the United States and other Western nations as well as other nations around the world. Whatever moral fiber once existed in the nation's character has largely unraveled. Decades have passed since General Douglas MacArthur observed, quote, history fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. End quote. And there are many examples of that in the Bible itself, as well as in history in general. Today, our political leaders are spending trillions of dollars every year generated out of thin air. Seemingly either they have forgotten fundamental laws of economics or they want to deliberately destroy the nation's economy. Powerful forces in the nation have long sought to make the nation over into a Marxist or communist state. And these forces have gained increasing influence and ascendancy to a large extent, and they seek to crush any dissent, as is commonplace in every communist country that has ever existed or does exist today. Political, economic, and moral crises have often led to watershed changes in the power and influence of major nations. The Roman Empire officially ceased to exist in 476 AD when conquered by the Heruli under King Odoacer. But in 554 AD, Justinian 
at the behest of the Bishop of Rome, restored the Roman Empire to the domination of the Catholic Church. And that was the first of seven prophesied resurrections of the Roman Empire or a politically united Europe. The fifth resurrection, as we look back in history, occurred under Napoleon. But what led to the rise of Napoleon as dictator of France and Europe? What eventually triggered the French Revolution was the calling of the Estates General in May 1789 to try to figure out how to deal with the fact that the French government was bankrupt. The bankruptcy of the French government led to the collapse of the monarchy, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and the dictatorship of Napoleon. The sixth resurrection of the Roman Empire was the Hitler-Mussolini axis. In many respects, the World War, World War II, started by Mussolini, Hitler, and the Japanese Empire, was a dress rehearsal for World War III, which will come before the end of this age. Mussolini came to power in a time of economic chaos in Italy. The depression that began in 1929 brought many nations to the verge of bankruptcy. The tensions in domestic affairs in various nations led to a marked turn toward dictatorial forms of government and a widespread repudiation of financial and moral obligations in the effort to solve domestic problems. Under the Dawes Plan and the Young Plan, Germany had become heavily indebted to the United States. Other nations in Europe also owed huge debts to the United States amounting to over $10 billion, which at that time was a lot of money, a lot more than it is today by far. By 1928, Germany had a foreign debt of 30 billion gold marks, mainly to the United States because of easy loans made possible by the Young Plan. And this was a staggering debt, but it made possible in Germany a boom period of superficial prosperity. At the time, Hitler's party had only 12 members in the Reichstag. 1928. However, in 1931, a banking crisis occurred in Europe which led to the withdrawing of foreign funds from Germany and the bankruptcy of the German government which left it unable to pay its debts. In 1928, there were only about a million unemployed in Germany, but by 1932 there were more than 6 million unemployed. Instead of 12 seats in the Reichstag, Hitler had 100 seven seats after the 1932 election. When Hitler was named Chancellor in January 1933, Germany was in extreme national crisis brought on by national bankruptcy and a world economic crisis. In the March 1933 elections, the Nazis increased their strength to 288 seats, and the world was on its way to World War II. Hitler managed to leverage his party's minority position, but a party which had a plurality of about 45% of the Reichstag's delegates to become the absolute dictator of Germany. Hitler temporarily solved Germany's economic problems by doing several things. First of all, renunciation of foreign debts. Secondly, establishing a strong central government that forbade strikes and instituted a program of public works 
such as building the Autobahn, a system of uh, superhighways across Germany. He also balanced the national budget. Fourth, he established bilateral, bilateral barter agreements with Balkan and Near Eastern countries. Fifth, he instituted a program of rearmament. And from 1935 to 1938, Germany went from practically nothing militarily to the world's most powerful nation in terms of its military strength. And six, and this is also a key element in Germany's economic recovery, he seized the property of the Jews. Millions of Jews had their property stolen from them by the Nazi government. So there are lessons in these examples that tell us that if the U.S. economy collapses, which is becoming more and more likely, or if there is a collapse of the world economy, new political realities will follow. And with political and economic crises of a world of worldwide nature, we might see the prophesied emergence of a united Europe under a dictatorship what the Bible calls the beast. And it will also include a religious revival because that power will be dominated by the Catholic Church. So what can we do to make sure that we are prepared no matter what happens? We are told, as in the scriptures already read, that we are to watch and warn. We're to watch what is happening and we're to warn the people, the nation, the world, what is in store in the future. Secondly, we can come out of the world. We can cast off the works of darkness. We can put on righteousness as we are instructed in Scripture. Let's examine these ideas in more detail in Luke 12. Luke 12, beginning verse 35, Jesus said, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And these are metaphorical statements here what he's saying is be alert awake prepared and your lamps burning in other words you should be setting an example of righteousness and truth you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks they may open to him immediately Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Surely I say to you that he will gird himself and will have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. So we are told to be at all times ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Our job is to watch, as he said, to be alert to the dangers facing us in the world and to warn of what is coming. We each have a part to play in the church's mission. To do that, we each individually ought to be alert, vigilant, spiritually aware. As we read in Revelation 3 and verse 3, Revelation 3 and verse 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So if we do not watch, then 
we will not be prepared for Christ's coming when it happens, is the message here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are drunk, are drunk at night. But those, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we are warned to not be asleep spiritually, to be watching, to be sober, to be awake, and to be growing in faith, in love, and in the hope of salvation. We must not allow ourselves to be consumed with the affairs of this life. Now, we all have to do certain things to maintain our existence. We have to do things to sustain our physical lives, but at the same time we need to keep our eyes on the long-term goal, the kingdom of God. We need to put that first in our concerns. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 29, This I say, brethren, the time is short. Now if it was short then, it's much shorter now. This scripture applies especially to our time today. Brethren, the time is short so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. We need to understand that everything about us is fleeting. Everything in this world is fleeting. Everything physical is temporary and passing away. And we're not going to be able to continue indefinitely in the condition and state that we are in. And so we need to focus on the things of God, the spiritual things, the things that are more important than the mere physical and fleeting things of this world and flesh. We're told in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6, Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we need to be seeking God daily 
calling on God daily, fervently in prayer. And we need to be examining ourselves and putting sin out of our lives. In Romans 13, beginning with verse 11, Romans 13, verse 11, do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now we all have human nature and we all have fleshly, fleshly desires, fleshly lusts that we need to fight constantly and daily. And so we, we must be putting on Jesus Christ daily, not making provision for the lust of the flesh, but seeking God and seeking to behave in a way that pleases Him. We need to be about the business of making our calling and election sure, as Peter admonished us in Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three, Second Peter one and verse three as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Notice he said, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And he tells us to exercise diligence. The Greek word is espudo, which implies quickness, haste, earnestness, diligence. And it implies immediate action without delay. Immediate, earnest, sincere, diligent effort. Virtue implies excellence, resolution, energy. In other words, we are to act on our faith. Faith without works is dead. Genuine faith leads to energetic action on our part. To repent, to study, to pray, to serve God. To overcome the flesh. To obey the commandments of God. Verse 6, knowledge is mentioned we need to be learning more about God about his plan his precepts his laws his word about what he wants us to become any false doctrines or false beliefs need to be discarded for the truth we should be diligently studying God's word regularly none of us knows everything he ought to know about scripture and there's plenty more to learn Temperance 
implies mastery, self-control. We must work diligently to overcome our lusts or bad habits, selfishness, self-righteousness, and every other vice and undesirable character trait. Perseverance implies remaining faithful when others have departed from the faith, continuing firm, holding out, remaining constant, enduring. Those who endure to the end will be saved, said Jesus Christ. Godliness implies reverence and faithfulness, an attitude of humility and service toward God. It implies doing good, serving others with reverence toward God and love for neighbor. Jesus told us to bless those who persecute us to do good, even to our enemies. Brotherly love implies genuine affection for others. We need to develop a bond with others among the faithful based on our mutual fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. Love goes deeper than affection. It is a genuine concern for the welfare of others manifested in our actions and our behavior. In Romans 13, beginning verse 8, Romans 13, verse 8, we are instructed, Owe no one anything except, except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, and there are, they're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Or it could be stated the fulfilling of the law is love. Love is defined by the commandments. So, the time is now to be prepared for Christ's return. It's now, it's tomorrow, it's every day. The time is now to show God that we are true Christians, that we are faithful. The time is now to make our calling and election sure.